You know, as we continue our study here in the book of Revelation, I want to always encourage you, want to always remind you that these things are yet future. Sometimes we, we start to focus in on what the Lord's speaking to us as we study the book of Revelation. There's almost this, you know, this pressure that comes upon us. It's like, oh, you know, is that going to happen too? Is it next week? Well, it might be. But in this case, we know it's not because we've been given some signs. And so we know uh, that many of the things we're reading about are actually fairly distant in the future, at least, uh, at least three and a half years if the rapture were to start tonight. And so don't lose heart. Remember that the Lord is even gracious in his wrath. He's merciful when he pours out his judgment on the world. And so the things that we see uh, here in the book of Revelation are for us to get excited about the day and the time that we live in. And it's so important for us to do that because we can become complacent. Anybody in here ever been complacent in your life? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think all of us have. You walk with the Lord for any length of period of time. You go through those, those periods of time where things are basically good and you're kind of moving along and you're, you know, you're kind of scooting up there on the, on the spiritual scale and you're growing in Christ and there's some neat things happening. Maybe you're even in ministry of some kind or another, you know, kind of those things that you do in addition to your normal walk with the Lord. You know, we have those times to where you're just like, you know, the family's okay and there's no major fires you're having to put out. And you just kind of, you know, you settle in. It's kind of like the people that are home right now watching the Dodger game. You, you thought I wasn't going to miss that, didn't you? Now, I'm not prophesying, but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, get your priorities squared away. You know, it's kind of one of those things that we, we need to remind ourselves frequently and often that, that the Lord is in control. He's absolutely sovereign. And we need not worry about what he has said, about what lies ahead. We need to take the time and use it wisely. That's the important part of this particular part of the book of Revelation. It's like, okay. We're sure, we're positive, the Lord's been truthful, he's never spoken a word that didn't come true, these things are going to come true. The question is for us, are we going to get busy about our Father's business? And so tonight we'll pick up in verse 12, we're going to uh, look here and finish up chapter 6, and next week we get to that famous group, the 144,000, uh, that will be gathered together in the last days. We're going to look at that particular group next week, but this week... Uh, this sixth seal, and, and really, before we get to the interlude of chapter 7, uh, what really amounts to, to a worldwide conflict and chaos, things that are hard for us to understand. Remind yourself where we began in the book of Revelation, if you would, please, that these things, though I believe they are literal events, they're seen through the eyes of a man who's sitting in a cave on the island of Patmos. He's outside of what we would call the digital age, uh, he was in the age of parchment and scrolls. So what he saw, even if he saw it exactly, and even he saw it concisely, which he did, he saw the actual event, how would he describe it so that it could transcend time? In other words, looking at the words that would be spoken, the Holy Spirit speaks these words to the Apostle John, and then he writes them down in a way that no matter whether you read them maybe 100 years later, say in, in, in 180, 90 A.D., or maybe you're reading them now in, in the year 2015, they would still be accurate and true. 
And so though there is symbolism, there's also absolute authority of God's purpose and plan so that we would understand that something's coming that's never happened before. And so as we look at these things, don't be tempted to toss it out because it sounds absolutely unbelievable. It will be absolutely unbelievable. And John, when he saw it, had to think, this is absolutely unbelievable. God's a God of miracles. God is a God who controls all things. And he can do anything he wants with his creation. And so he will. And so tonight we'll pick up in verse 12. And let's pray. Father, again, we turn our attention to you. Lord, we look unto heaven from whence our help comes. We thank you that, Lord, these things are to be discerned in the Spirit, and we pray that you would speak by your Spirit to us. As we study your Word, we draw deeply uh, from the knowledge that's contained within it, God, so that we can be uh, in tune with your plan for these, the last days. God, we thank you for, for speaking to us as mere human beings, God, with frail minds, with limited ability to understand and so give us eyes to see and ears to hear and understanding to match these matchless words and we ask these things in Christ's precious name amen verse 12 here in revelation 6 and i looked and when he opened the sixth seal remember the first four the horses come out the fifth we have this war that breaks loose on earth and now the sixth seal literally the world comes unglued it's the easiest way to understand it. Worldwide chaos. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And we think about great earthquakes because we've had a few. Maybe some of you lived through, say, the Northridge quake, or you know, you've been around for some of the shakers that we've had, and, and you know what kind of damage can be done from even a, a 7.2, a 7.3 earthquake. Now, now imagine that this is an earthquake like mankind has not ever seen. We often think, you know, these things are limited to our Richter scale. You know, that, well, if it ever gets to a 10, that's it. Well, I can tell you, God can do whatever God wants to do. And if you study such things, you look at our world, and you, you think about the way the earth is, is floating around. We have a very thin crust that uh, rides on top of a semi-liquid mantle, and inside of it a liquid core uh, that basically is nearly as hot as an atomic engine, and, and this whole thing is, is spinning underneath our feet. There's a lot of stuff going on. And, and if we ever had the clash of continents, if we had you know, the North American plate crash into the Asiatic plate, and we have what's called plate subduction, and one plate is sucked literally underneath another plate, uh, we could move some soil like you've never seen. Geologists believe that that's the reason for the existence of most of the major mountains uh, and the ranges of mountains on the earth. That in fact, as those plates collide, that land is uplifted on the other side of them, and hence you have the Himalayas or the Sierra Nevadas or perhaps the Andes in South America. Now imagine that God decides he's going to remove his hand of, of blessing from the earth, and he wants to teach man a lesson and all of a sudden, those things that are happening very slowly and very controlled, he decides, look, I, I, I need to make a point here. And a couple of those plates actually collide. The force of all that is a continent 
slamming into another continent now is the basis for that earthquake. Not just a simple slippage. We don't know how God will do it. But the fact of the matter is, he says that there will be a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And when he's making a differentiation here, normal sackcloth would have likely been made out of flax. It, it could have even been woven uh, out, of, out of plant material so that you could nearly see through it. A sackcloth could be anything from what we would call almost a screen to, in this case, a sackcloth made out of hair, which would be so tightly woven as to be able to hold water. And so this kind of sackcloth would be absolutely impenetrable to light. You wouldn't be able to see light through it. And so now the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to earth. Remember, these things are literal in John's vision, but he's going to write about them as best as he knows. He's not ever seen uh, the Gulf War, where we launched several thousand cruise missiles in a couple of days. He's never seen a meteor shower. He doesn't even know what a meteor is. He simply knows that there are stars in the heavens, and those stars, he doesn't know how big they are. He doesn't know whether they're literally little dots, pinpricks in heaven, or whether they are, as we now know, many of them are actually galaxies that we see. They're not even stars. There are collections of billions of stars. And there are billions of those galaxies that have billions of stars. And so he's understanding this with his mind and he's writing in a fashion, look, the stars begin to fall from the sky. As a fig drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And so he's using things that would translate over time as he speaks these things. And it's very easy to see one of the, the great rules of biblical interpretation, when the plain sense and meaning makes sense, seek no other meaning. And in this case, the reverse is true. Obviously, a star much larger than planet Earth could not ever fall from the sky, and the Earth still exists after it happens. So there's something else going on here. The stars begin to fall from heaven, uh, like the figs fall out of a fig tree. If you have a fig tree, there's a time... Uh, in the life of a fig tree, once the fruit is ripe and it's become fully heavy and the little stem that it hangs on no longer can support it, the slightest wind and every fig falls right out of the tree on the ground. And so this is a massive event of proportions that John is saying, look, it looks like the stars are falling out of sky when, it, when a fig drops its late figs. In other words, the overripe fatty figs are going to just plop on the ground. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. We see the sky uh, arched over our heads every day. And when you look up, most of us, you know, we can't tell instantaneously that there's a curvature to our earth. We, we just simply look out at the sky and there it is. And it's as if the sky has rolled back up. It, it's gone away. Every mountain, every island was moved out of its place. And notice what happens next. And the kings of the earth, the great men, notice they've not been totally destroyed. So obviously an actual star doesn't hit the earth because they're still alive to tell the story. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves 
in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Now they're hiding from something that John has just described as stars falling from heaven. So we can plainly see that what he's seeing he understands with a limited understanding but it is catastrophic so much so that it shakes the fabric of the world that he lives in. It's happening globally. But the people that are left on the earth are hiding from it. So it has to be something that is explainable in some other way. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us, from, hide us from him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. John understands that this is God's wrath. This is the wrath of the Lamb that's now fallen on the earth. And there are people that have survived this cataclysm. And they are now crying out, hide us. And notice what it says in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now, for us as believers, because we're, we're children of God's grace. Anybody a child of God's grace in here tonight? Amen. We're the children of God's grace. And so we're, we're absolutely certain what our destiny is. We're children of the King. We know that God will not and has not a plan to pour out his wrath on us as his children. He spared us from that. Scripture plainly declares that truth, that he has not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. So we know that we're not going to experience these things. And so anyone who does experience these things, as God pours out his wrath, we have to look through Scripture to determine why God is going to pour out his wrath. What's the reasoning for it? It's not simply to just destroy mankind. It isn't that he's finally just so fed up that he's just going to wipe everyone and everything out. Even in his wrath being poured out upon the earth, he still has grace in view. His plan is still to stir up those who are left unto repentance. And the reason that we understand this is because of what's happened in your life and my life. You see, as we came to Christ, there, there came a moment when you understood that you were a sinner and that the direction you were traveling was wrong and that if you didn't change, that you were one day going to face God's wrath. And so as you individually have made that choice, God now broadens that to the whole world and, and shrinks the time. Right now he's gone for 2,000 years saying, here's the message of the cross, if you'll turn and repent and receive Christ, you'll receive my grace. And now God is saying, look, the time of that is almost completely over. There's still a little tiny window. And so rather than anyone having an opportunity to say, nah, yeah, I'm going to wait. The Lord is now saying the time to wait is over. And if you want to know why, I'm going to take every single thing you hold dear and I'm going to destroy it. There'll be nothing for you to trust in. You see, right now, mankind trusts in the arm of flesh. We trust in the God mammon, money. 
We trust in power and passion and possessions. We trust in all kinds of things. We trust in relationships. We trust in bank accounts. We trust in our homes. We trust in other people. But very often we don't trust in God. And so what God is going to do in the final stages of mankind's ability to to rebel, God's going to say, look, everything that you can possibly trust in, you're not going to be able to trust in it. He's going to make the choice so clear that it's him or the enemy. Right now, those lines in some people's minds are blurred. Well, you know, I'm not really sure that there is a God. I'm not really sure that there is a heaven. I'm not really sure there is a hell. It will be absolutely, 100% tangibly visible that there is one choice that you can make that's going to spare you from what's going on on the earth, and that's to receive and believe. And so as these days unfold, it's that great day of the Lord. It's the time that we know is the great tribulation, which has now moved to the period of time that's the second three and a half years of that final week of Daniel's prophecy of these 70 weeks. The last week, the 70th week, three and a half years into it, the enemy of of the world, the Antichrist, the, the one who will be stirring up all of this political intrigue, will have made a covenant with the children of Israel. He will break that covenant in the middle of the week, and we'll get to this at the end of the study tonight. And at that time, he's going to allow absolutely his colors to be revealed. Until that time, he's going to look like the savior of the world. He's going to look like the greatest leader that the the political world has ever seen, that the monetary world has ever seen, and the religious world has ever seen. And then all of a sudden, well, that's not really what I meant. I actually meant to kill all of you. I actually meant to destroy you. And he'll break that covenant he's made with this realm. And so worldwide chaos ensues. And remind yourself that this is now almost exclusively an unbelieving world. There are pockets of people who believe, but it has become so difficult to be a believer. Remember, we've already seen the martyrs. Those who have believed and basically paid with their life, they've left. And remember that these seals are a condensation of not just the seal judgments, but also the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments. Those other judgments go on to describe in greater detail what we've already seen summarized. And so what you now have unfolding is this incredible time of turmoil and chaos. And we're going to see actually three great earthquakes. This is the first of them. We'll see another one in chapter 11, another one in chapter 16. And it's all of creation. Notice how the whole of creation is affected. This is no longer even just simply confined to the earth. That the atmosphere around the earth is affected. The moon, those those things that we would call the upper stretches of our atmosphere, will be affected as well. Terror comes upon mankind. Can you imagine... You know, we've seen a few volcanic eruptions in our day and time. I'll never forget when Mount St. Helens erupted. Back when we still had newspapers, I mean, for some reason I get one at our house right now. It's like they signed up for 100 years of the Wall Street Journal, so it still comes to the house. 
And I open it up, and I go, well, I can get that a lot quicker by going on the Internet. But you used to pick up the morning paper, and there was a full-page spread of this incredible volcanic cloud reaching into the upper levels of the stratosphere, and in some cases to the ionosphere. Some 80,000 feet in the air, that ash cloud finally went. It blew around the globe. Eventually, that, that dust cloud traveled completely around the entire Earth. Plane flights had to go around it. The shadow that it caused caused the, the temperature to drop two or three degrees across all of Canada. We had all these things that happened from a single volcano erupting. Now imagine God says, well, you know what? I'm no longer going to hold that magma underneath the surface of the earth. I'm just going to let them see what they can do if I just let all of them go off at once. You see, God can do that. We sit around thinking, isn't it weird how we're just like, well, you know, you, look, the San Andreas Fault is 65 miles that way. We keep getting told we're due for the big one, right? The last time we had a big one, the city of San Francisco was reduced to rubble. Granted, it was a time we didn't have earthquake-safe buildings, but now we have earthquake-safe buildings that are 1,000 feet tall. The guy's not waving, the building's waving. <laughs> you know, we think we've got it all figured out. Well, you know, we bored down 100 feet into the dirt, and we've got these gigantic shock absorbers on the buildings, and, you know, we, we've got it all worked out. We've spent tens of billions of dollars around the United States retrofitting bridges and overpasses and buildings for earthquake safety, and all of a sudden, God says, well, that was good then, but it's not going to work now. God can do whatever he wants to do. And when he takes his hand and says, okay, you don't believe that I'm who I say I am? You want to still follow the Antichrist? You want to follow the enemy? Let me show you what that actually meant. Remember, as we've seen on Sunday, his name, literally, Apollyon, means destroyer. That's his end game. Satan, deceiver, liar, adversary, the devil. And all of a sudden, everybody's going to know who's who. Right now, people have that little confused. Well, you know, I mean, he's not all that bad. They're going to know. And now people are going to try and hide from the wrath of the lamb. Can you, you ever thought about, you know, like a fearsome guard lamb? It's like hiding from the face of the lamb. This is the lamb of God they're hiding from. He's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. But they're going to hide from the face of the lamb because it's going to be very clear that God is doing this. People have a tough time with that. Say, well, you know, I, I just could never love a God who did that. Let me tell you this, that if you look at this from the proper perspective, you have to love a God who does this because he's absolutely righteous and he's not letting evil go on forever. He's only allowed it for a purpose and for a time. And he's eventually going to say, no more. 
This is the result. This is what mankind has asked for. It's what mankind asks for right now. All of the insanity that's going on in our country with, with laws. We, we, have, we were bouncing back and forth as staff an email today. Some of you probably saw it. There, there's a football coach in, in Bremerton, Washington, who's been praying for some six or seven years. He is a Gulf War vet. He's a decorated soldier. He has a bronze star. I believe he has two purple hearts. He's a high school football coach. And he has simply said, if you'd like to join me at midfield before the game, we're going to pray and ask God's protection on everyone who's here, that, that we would have you know, fair play, that no one would be injured. And, and now this has become a national event to where he's going to likely lose his job. If he went out in the center of the field and took his whole team and for 15 minutes screamed the most vile vulgarities that you can possibly think of, it would be protected free speech. Do you think our world is messed up? You can't pray in Jesus' name, but you can curse until you run out of wind. You catch a dolphin in your net, you will probably lose every single thing that you own in fines to the federal government. But if you decide that your baby you don't want to keep and you decide you want to terminate its life, that's viewed as okay. No wonder God's going to say, enough. God's giving mankind what mankind has actually asked for, and he's going to be perfectly just in doing it. Seems like a paradox to us, but this is what unrepentance gets you. It's what it gets you today. Probably many of you have seen people, known people, maybe someone in your life who they've turned that corner to become not just unaccepting, but they have become belligerent against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I have watched them, I have been with them when they've taken their last breath. I have been at the deathbed of people who will look you in the eye and use as many vulgarities as they can possibly cram in and don't talk to me about your Jesus. If that's what you want to believe, I'm going to go to hell with all my friends. I've had people say that to me. And mean it. You see, you each get the choice individually. Now it's come down to we're running out of time. God's going to make it so clear that anyone who has even the slightest inkling that God is who he says he is, that he loves, and he desires that all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of repentance, he's given them basically three and a half more years to make a choice. And it's going to be as if hell opened up on earth. You think it's bad now. I want you to see this because some people look at these passages of Scripture and they almost pull them. You know, it's like, well, well, that's the book of Revelation. Jesus said exactly the same things. 
And I've tried to make this in, in a sense so you can compare them. And I, and I won't go over it, but as you look at these, remember you can get these slides online. You can just download them. But as you look at what Jesus said in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and you look at what John is saying. Now remember, Jesus is writing in probably 31, 32 A.D., and now John is writing in probably 91, 90. So 60 years later, without the advent of Internet, nobody was carrying around the Gospels. Nobody had a written copy of them. John surely didn't. And so there's no way in the world he could have, okay, what do I need to say next? So what does Jesus say? Matthew's Gospel, it's exactly the same thing that John sees. They're identical. False Christ, the first horse, is the white rider, the Antichrist, the true false Christ. He sees wars and rumors of wars. We see the red horse and war, rumors of wars. We see famines in the Olivet Discourse. We see the black horse, famine. We see death in the Olivet Discourse. We see the pale horse, death. We see martyrs in the Olivet Discourse. We see martyrs under the altar in John's writings here in Revelation. And then finally, this very event, this worldwide chaos in Matthew 24 and also in John chapter 6. God's faithful to remind us of what he's saying and what he's doing. And never think that God's been unfair. Because I have people tell me, well, you know, if we knew this and they didn't know it then, then God wasn't fair. No, God told them then. Jesus himself spoke those words then. People will eventually, during this time, come to trust in the Lord. But there's going to be grave consequences. And it will not be like it is right now. It's amazingly easy to become a believer in Christ right now. You can simply say yes to Jesus Christ. And yeah, it might cost you your job. That's possible. It may cost you some standing with some of your friends. You may get, disin- you may get unfriended on Facebook. <gasps> horror of horrors. So you'll no longer be on those ridiculous chains of Facebook posts. Don't get me started. <laughs> but then, celestial disruptions. And I want you to notice that the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Joel, Zephaniah, and Jesus himself all said these things. So for 600 years before Jesus came, almost seven, to almost A.D. 100, there's a period of seven, close to 800 years, where God is speaking forth this message, look, you need to change the way you're doing things, or it's going to get ugly. And so what we've had now is 2,000 years of God being patient and kind and gracious and loving and long-suffering and overlooking our transgressions and our faults and our weaknesses. So when people say, well, it's unfair, no, it's not unfair. It's absolutely just, 
And he's gone a whole lot longer than you would if you had given your son or maybe your daughter to die in someone else's place while they thumbed their nose at the sacrifice. That's what mankind has done. And on top of that, the world still continues to persecute the nation Israel. And we don't get it. They're still there. It's God's land. He gave it to them. It belongs to them. As far as God's concerned, it's his land he's given to Israel. And the world says, no, you can't be there. Matter of fact, you need to give that back. Give it back to who? It's theirs. They were there first. It's kind of like finders, keepers, losers, weepers. In that sense, the Jewish people conquered that land under Joshua and Caleb. They received that inheritance. God gave it to them. It has been known for three and a half thousand years as the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's theirs. Mankind, ah, belongs to the Palestinians. Now, I want to be really careful here because I realize that there may be some, even here tonight, that are perhaps believing the modern tale of the Palestinian people. There's no Palestinian language. There never has been. There's no actual Palestinian people. They are displaced Bedouins from other Arab cultures. And so they simply settled in that land. But it's not like there were Persian people and Jewish people. There's no such thing as a Palestinian people. They're people in name only. They live there. But the Jewish people actually are a singular people with a singular language and a singular possession that was given to them by God. And so in that sense, they are, as far as God's concerned, and as far as God's people are concerned, the rightful heirs to that land. Furthermore, the Jewish people do more for the Palestinian people than the Palestinian people do for themselves. One-third of the Israeli national budget goes to taking care of Palestinian Arabs. The Knesset is almost one-third Palestinians. So when people say, well, they're not being fair, they're being more than fair. In that day, Zephaniah the prophet said in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It's near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter, and the mighty men shall cry. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, is this picture of this time. And so while we don't know the specific day and hour, we know that it refers to this final week of Daniel's prophecy. The tribulation. 
It's used throughout Scripture. Isaiah uses it, Ezekiel uses it, Joel uses it, Zephaniah uses it. Even the Lord himself uses the same phrase. It's a day of distress, a day of devastation, a day of desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, of thick clouds. You you get the picture? God's saying, look, this is the way it's going to go down. Joel chapter 2 says it this way in verse 10. And the sun, the moon will grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible, and who can endure it? You, You see, the answer to that question is this massive chaos that's going to ensue. Because God's finally just going to say, enough. And we're not talking about, about some kind of harvest moon. We're not, you know, we're not going over, you know, it's not going to be the Shemitah. It's not going to be a blood moon. It's not going to be any of those things. This is going to be a cosmic event that when the world sees it, they're going to go, uh-oh, this isn't good. Jesus opens this sixth seal, and the whole world is basically going to go into convulsions. And people are going to then, at that time, uh, be forced to choose between survival and not surviving. Notice how these groups of people are used. It, you know, it's kings, and it doesn't matter who you are. We're, right now in our world, we talk about the privileged class. You know, we talk about the one percenters. There aren't going to be any percenters on earth at that time. Everybody's going to be in the same boat. You can have all of Bill Gates' money, Warren Buffett's money, and Donald Trump's money, and you're still going to be hurting for certain. You're going to be going, it's useless. It's worthless. You know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I can tell you this. These things are not only possible, they're not now that far-fetched. Because some of the things that are are mentioned here uh, likely pertain to those very last things that still need to occur, like the destruction of Damascus in Isaiah chapter 17. Maybe an all-out nuclear conflict somewhere in the globe. You see, when we think of the, the use of nuclear weapons, in our mind it's confined to what we do know. We are the only nation on earth who's ever actually used them in armed conflict. Horrendous. And when the United States dropped those two nuclear weapons on Japan, they are firecrackers compared to what we now possess. And I don't mean to diminish the loss in any way, shape, or form. I'm talking about the scope and the magnitude of the weapons that we used in World War II on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The we-, we don't even have things that small. We got hand grenades that are bigger than that now. We, we have massive nuclear weapons, as do the Russians. When you look at the Middle East today, Pakistan likely has somewhere around 130 nuclear warheads. India has at least 200. Israel does not admit to having any, but we know they have between 100 and 400 nuclear weapons. The United States almost has 5,000. We used to have 16,000. Russia has very close to the same amount as the United States. And, And they are infinitely larger Mass, unbelievably larger. Could it be that he saw a nuclear exchange 
Could it be that he saw the world gone completely nuts? There's some bits and pieces. You talk about, you know, we, we're, we're, I don't know if you guys like Star Wars. I, Star Wars, I stood in line for two and a half hours for the first one. That was the most cool movie I'd ever seen in my entire life. I think I saw it like four times. I actually used to have a small Yoda in my car. Now this is Star Wars here. The stars fell from the sky to the earth as the late figs dropped from a fig tree when it's shaken by a wind. Could, could it be an asteroid disintegrating someplace not too far from the earth? We've had a couple of near misses in the last ten years. We've got another one coming up in a year and a half. What if God says, you know, I'm just going to kind of flick that with my fingernail. And again, I'm speaking anthropomorphically. I'm attributing a, a, a condition that we would say is a man-caused condition to God. But in a sense, I mean, what does it take if he spoke the universe into existence? What does he have to do to bump an asteroid? Not much. Secular scientists say that the reason the dinosaurs don't exist is because one asteroid hit the earth. That's it. Now, I happen to think they all got buried underneath the debris of the flood, but the bottom line is not exactly all that far-fetched. The beginning of the Gulf War in 92, there was a time, you probably remember some of you watching those for the first time ever in the course of human history, instantaneous live feed from a battlefield to your TV set. Night sky over Iraq lit up. It looked like stars falling from the sky, didn't it? We don't know. It speaks here of what appears to be some type of a, of a giant tidal wave that, that occurs. The sky recedes like a scroll. If you ever have had a chance to watch some of the nuclear detonations that we've done on planet Earth, the United States... Uh, first one to do that, but back on May 24th of 1956, a B-52 bomber flies over the Bikini Atoll and drops the world's first hydrogen bomb. You may have seen the, the, the photos of that. We actually anchored a mock fleet around the target site. And the tidal wave that emanated out from that very small hydrogen bomb uh, was well over 100 feet tall. And you just watch these ships get tossed around like nothing. That's from a single hydrogen bomb that we don't even have one that small anymore. Now we have them on the orders of magnitudes. The, the Russians actually possess a hundred megaton hydrogen bomb. Crazy stuff. We possess in our military fleet 18 Ohio-class nuclear submarines. 14 of which were actually built as Trident submarines. Four more converted to Trident submarines. That means that they have 24 missile launch tubes in them, each one of them with a Trident nuclear missile in it. That missile is a three-stage missile capable of traveling 5,500 kilometers. That means from anywhere on Earth, it can basically go halfway around the world. Each one of those missiles has an independently targetable warhead 
with a yield of 475 kilotons. The bombs we dropped on Japan were 15 to 20 kilotons. By the START treaty, we're only allowed to put eight of them in each missile, but they're capable of holding 12 and in some cases 14 of them. Now imagine for a moment, but let's just say the Russians decide that they want to hit one of our nuclear subs with a nuclear torpedo. And that whole thing detonates underwater. Almost 200 nuclear warheads going off simultaneously. They figure out how to rig the launch code. We don't know. And that goes off underneath the water. It's been estimated the tidal wave from that would be in excess of 4,000 feet tall if that ship was sitting someplace near the bottom of the ocean at 5,000 feet. So when people say, oh, that can't happen. Oh, yes, it can. For the first time in human history, we actually can understand exactly how it would happen. Islands moved. It's exactly what it would do. Do I know that for sure? Of course not. But it no longer is in the realm of, man, that's weird. How could that possibly, islands move? No, island moving. Well, yeah, we can now move islands. We can do things that John would have never understood. And you can imagine what would come along with that. Worldwide panic. Remember a number of years ago when an earthquake happened off the coast of Thailand? Almost a quarter of a million people died in a tidal wave that was 15 feet tall. That's all it was when it hit land. You see, so when people say, ah, that can't ever happen. Now imagine God's done playing around with mankind. He can do anything he wants. That's why we need to be very thankful for his grace tonight, amen? We're still in the age of grace, brothers and sisters. And you need to be reminded, everybody, we're still in the age of grace. Because one day, that age has ended. You know, right now, we look at all these things. People are going to be running for their life. They're going to be looking at these, these last things, and they're going to... Nobody's going to escape. Nothing is going to escape. Notice people on the earth are calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the Lamb. They're not going to be calling, they're not going to be calling up the Secretary of State. They're not going to be calling up their local embassy. You know, we're being mistreated. It's going to be, oh God. Literally, oh God. The mountains are moving. The islands are moving. The sky is black. Multitudes are going to, I believe, multitudes will finally admit the existence of God because of it. I think this will be the thing that turns the tide. They're going to look at it and go, that crazy Christian, that that crazy Christian that disappeared three and a half years ago, 
that nutty, that guy, that woman that used to invite me to that stupid church that's in an industrial building, that guy told me about this. That insane pastor, that guy I hated with hot heaping hunks of hate because he convinced my girlfriend to get saved and she would no longer do what we used to do. He's not even around anymore. I can't even hate on him. God help me. They're going to be crying out going, they were right. All along they were right. The Bible was right. There is a God. And what that Bible that they tried to give me, that I threw in the trash, what it said, what they said was in there, is now coming true. I laughed at them. I mocked them. I told them they were nuts. And all of a sudden, the stars start to fall from the sky in a wave that oversweeps an entire continent. The islands move, the mountains are laid waste. It's a day of God's wrath, it says there in verse 17. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? You, you see, we know the answer. The answer does are those who are found in Christ. Amen? We know who can stand. It may cost you your life, but you'll be good. I call this the yo-yo period. You're, you're going you're gonna to get saved, go to heaven for like a week, and come back. You see, the reason that we know the tribulation is yet to come is found in our Bibles. And I, and I just want to review a couple of things with you tonight. So we already looked at Daniel's 70th week. It's important to remind yourself that these things, you don't need to really, if you're here tonight, the fact that you're hearing them, it's all good. You still got time. How much time? At the very most, you might have, who knows, 100 years. At the very least, you've got at least three and a half years. The rapture happens tonight. All of a sudden, you're sitting here, and you're going, man, where did everybody go? Our Bibles are still open. They're on the floor. They're sitting there, and we're gone. You've got three and a half years. So here's what I would suggest to you. Give your life to Jesus right now, tonight. And then you can come with us. Now, if you don't like option A, option B is this. You cannot give your life to Jesus tonight. You can hang on to whatever it is that you got. And then when that happens, I would suggest to you that instantaneously you go, Jeff was right, and give your life to Jesus. And then you can come meet us. Option C is you wait for three and a half years and you go, oh my, Jeff was right. <laughs> then you give your life to Jesus and you went through three and a half years of hell for nothing. You getting the picture here? Yeah. God, that's the reason God tells us these things. It's so that no one would go through it. 
It's supposed to register in your mind, in your heart. Oh, man, I don't want to risk that. And so he told us about these things. Daniel's prophecy was so clear. Based on that period of time that Peter was writing about with the year, day is as a thousand years is as a day. So that final week that's going to unfold, that gives us that Sabbath rest that Revelation 20 talks about, that Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us of, that it's, it's going to happen. One day it's going to happen. God's going to make good on all of his promises. Mankind's been around on this earth, as far as the Bible's con- concerned, for about 6,000 years, right now, tonight. That, that chronological uh, understanding that we have from the time of, of the creation of man, as far as the Bible is concerned, to tonight. We've been here about 6,000 years. The Bible says that that last period is a time of rest. God's worked that way. He, he's made it very clear that he's going to give us that Sabbath. And it's interesting that when you look at what God spoke to the Hebrew people, and he said, six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you shall rest. Do you know why that was? Man got to do everything man wanted to do for six days. Man could earn money. Man could go work. Man could do whatever man wanted to do for six days. On the seventh day, they gave that day to God. Your Bible says, we're going to get there in Revelation 20, that there's going to be a Sabbath rest for this earth. It's going to be God's time. It's going to be a thousand years. So I would propose to you that we're already on borrowed time. Now, I don't know when the Lord's going to blow the trumpet, take us out of here, but I know we've already had six days of a thousand years. And there's going to be one day of a thousand years that's rest. And before that happens, there's going to be Daniel's final week. So I think the world's on borrowed time. How borrowed? I don't want to find out. I just want to be right with the Lord so whenever it happens, I'm good to go. If you do a careful study of Scripture, people say, well, you know, Jesus has been talking about that. In Matthew chapter 24, and if you want to turn there, we'll end with this tonight. In Matthew chapter 24, there in the middle of that final week, notice Jesus is actually quoting the prophet Daniel. And there in verse 15, it says, And therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that is Jesus referring to Daniel's prophecy. And as he refers to Daniel's prophecy, he says, you see that spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. He's writing in a future tense. When you see these things. It did not happen. It didn't happen in Jesus' time. The temple was destroyed after Jesus left this earth. 
It could not possibly have been that Jesus was speaking of the time that Titus would come and destroy it because the temple was never desecrated. No one ever set themselves up as a false god from the time that Jesus spoke those words until the time the Romans destroyed the temple. So only part of that got fulfilled. And so we have one last little tidbit that we need to remind ourselves of. That last tiny bit. People have confused this with the desecration that happened under Antiochus Epiphanes. And that he died in 164 B.C., so it couldn't have been then because Jesus spoke those words nearly 200 years later. The only way you can desecrate a temple is if there's a temple. Amen? You kind of get it? You see that? So if there's no temple, you can't desecrate something that's not there. Interesting that the prophet Ezekiel says that there will be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. And he says it in the context of the very last days. So if you happen to see some large blocks of limestone getting moved up on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you might want to pack your bags. Because then time will be really short. Because Jesus said, when you see these things happen, you know that the tribulation is at hand. It hasn't happened yet. That's good news for us tonight. Still time to tell your friends, still time to tell your family about the goodness of God's grace. Offer them that hope, that same hope that we offer to you tonight. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, Jesus loves you. He died for you. And he did so that you could live eternally with him. But there's a day coming when it's not going to be so easy as it is tonight. Don't miss that opportunity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to pray right now that you by your spirit, maybe someone watching on the internet or God in some foreign land, as so many people do watch us all over the world. Lord, we pray that you would just convict and convince of the truth of the good news of the gospel, that you, Jesus, have loved us with an everlasting love, that you came to this earth, Lord, for the express purpose of bringing salvation, Lord, saving us, offering us heaven by grace and through faith, believing in you, believing in your name, the fullness of your sacrifice on Calvary's cross, that anyone who believes in you will be saved. Lord, thank you for that promise. Pray that it is a reality for all of us here tonight. We ask that you'd bless us and fill us with your presence in our lives. Give us, even in the midst of these last days, Lord, give us joy. Give us the hope of tomorrow, the glories of what lies ahead, that mansion that you have built for us in heaven. But we can't wait. So, Lord, we bless you for telling us the truth in advance. You didn't wait until it was too late. You told us in advance that things would start to go south. And so, Lord, help us to take these words and apply them wisely and correctly to our lives. We bless you, praise you, 
We thank you. God's people all said. Amen.